sensible progressive politics seek to set the frontiers of the achievable and hipster self-indulgence is a disciplinary concept that permits limits to be set on ambition. The ambit of the sensible includes nods to a fairer, but not even really Keynesian capitalism, vociferous opposition to obvious populist excesses without a materialist critique of how these excesses came about, a heavily commodified sectional feminism and notional anti-racism, and, and in the particularly British context, a tendency to argue the case for an overturning of Brexit. It also revels in any political figure who offers even the slightest break on the so-called popular surge. The handsome, platitudinous Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the new French President Emmanuel Macron, the melancholically missed Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. Even traditionalist conservatives like the German Chancellor Angela Merkel get brought into this strange pantheon for the simple virtue of not being Donald Trump or Vladimir Putin. This is a fantasy of moderation that can offer no story about how the supposedly immoderate came about, other than by pointing in the vague direction of Russia or the internet or the failure of the left. It conceives of the third way as a natural, authentic state of political being to which anyone adult, and adulthood is a creepy preoccupation of this group, would wish to return. Here, politics is thought of not as ideology, not as a battle of ideas, not as an expression of material contradictions, but as a materially invested, morally invested proceduralism in which qualified technocrats work for a hazily defined good. Advocates of this line of thought tend to see themselves as on the political left, but perhaps because it's a position that emerges from Blairism and therefore is associated with the Labour Party, but seem to struggle when asked to say exactly what is left-wing about rejoicing in the success of a figure like, figure like Macron, a former banker whose main ambition seems to be finding a way of extending the remit of neoliberal politics within a country that has always been somewhat recalcitrant in the face of such ideas. Boom! Boom! <laughs> Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Saskia. I'm Chantel. Tiso. And today we're with our special guest, Joe Kennedy, author of Authenticrats. Hello, how are you doing? Um, and Joe is also a lecturer in English and Cultural Studies at the University of Gothenburg. And today we're bringing the podcast to you from a cafe on this campus at University of Sussex. So apologies for uh, any murmurs and things you can hear in the background. Um, so we're here to talk about authentic arts. How's the reception been so far to your book? Well, I seem to have been doing quite a few podcasts, certainly. Um, and as I... As I understand it, it, it seems to have re- had more reach than my last book, which was about football. Um, so it's it's done quite well. Like what I've been encouraged by is people actually finding their own ways into reading the book and, and finding their own uses for it, and maybe uses that I hadn't quite anticipated. So people come to me and say, "I found this bit is it useful or important?" And, and, and sometimes a bit that I wrote as a, a kind of joining or bridging section. Um, so I mean. The fact that people have been using it to their own ends has been really good. And for me, that's the kind of reception I'd hope to get. Joe, what's it about? Uh, in brief, or... Yeah, in brief, if you had to summarise it, how would you summarise Authenticraft? It's easier to talk about how it started, I think, okay. to precisely say what it's about. But it, it began in around 2015 in, with the, um, the general election, which... Tories won a large majority and yeah. Ed Miliband uh, failed significantly in every conceivable way. Um, and before that election, I remember a friend of mine and I were arguing, I said, actually he talks about the book as a really bad story, I think, but we, we were arguing on Facebook with some 1990s music journalists um, who, well, why we knew them on Facebook is, is just too long a story, but 
we realised that they were kind of insisting that you voted Labour whatever uh, and we were saying well we don't want to vote for a Labour party that has the controls in immigration we don't see why our politics should be defined by a party and they're saying but you know they're, they're just the, the party that you vote for we said no we vote for the policies and the politics we want to vote for seems, seems sensible and we noticed that when Ed Miliband's scheme amazingly failed, um, that there were a bunch of Labour MPs who started saying that he, he failed because he was too left-wing, and this was, to my mind, clearly not the case. And the narrative, which had been bubbling away since, I don't know, 2009, 2010, maybe even since Gordon Brown came apart, that Labour needed to shift to the right to meet the needs and wants of this supposedly authentic demographic in English culture, particularly in the English regions, this came to the forefront and we saw uh, loads of journalists of the centre-left saying we need to broaden our appeal to, and it was always this kind of like homogenous people in Mansfield, people in Hereford, people in Louth, where, where, and I can do this people in joke for ages because that's what it was like to read it. Um, this uh, narrative about the forgotten white English working classes, which we have over and over and over and over again. And then the sheer opprobrium and anger that seemed to emerge from these people when they didn't get what they wanted and actually Corbyn was voted as the leader, leader of the Labour Party. And that's where it began, this kind of discussion about uh, the way that authenticity was being manipulated by the English centre-left or the English political centre and they wanted to play this kind of double game which is pro-European and, and kind of pro-liberal in one sense of the word and then really kind of dogmatically anti-liberal in another sense I thought and it, it didn't quite add up so I sat pursuing that and actually sat writing and this is my kind of bitchy bit but uh, I started writing a, a pitch for another publisher who sort of strung me along for a while and then I went back to my old publisher and wrote it for them, which meant that it ended up being a book about 2017 and everything that happened subsequently with Owen Smith. And, uh, and, but, you know, I mean, there were just so many, yeah. so many kind of embarrassing things that happened. Attempt to actually map them in fairly serious terms. Um, so do a cultural analysis and think about what kind of... It's got a, a sort of thick description of it, if you like, as a phenomenon. What does Owen Smith's kind of coffee confusion actually mean? Yeah, can you just... Um, I know you talk about it in the book, but just in case people haven't read about it, you talk in like very entertaining terms about Owen Smith and his frothy coffee, but I think it makes like a serious political point. Can I can I just be clear just before you answer that, Joe? Owen Smith is the guy that tried to be the Labour leader who challenged Jeremy Corbyn for those of our listeners that don't know that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly who, who I'm talking about. And okay, the coffee story, which I feel I may have manipulated slightly as well, has been pointed out on Amazon or elsewhere. Uh, Owen Smith was being interviewed by The Guardian while he was pitching for the leadership, and in it he was brought a, a cappuccino in a cup. I think and he said, he turned around to the interviewer and said, seriously, I would have a mug normally and express surprise when he got the biscuits that you always get when you get a frothy coffee or a cappuccino. You all live in London, right? Don't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're yeah, all yeah. students in London, so you know any cafe in London where you get any kind of coffee with froth on the top always comes with a little biscuit. It's not an abnormal, weird thing. Uh, and I've certainly seen it in cafes since my childhood. And it, and it seems very contrived. I actually feel a bit guilty because I don't feel like Owen Smith is really the villain of the piece. No. But he's an easy comedy character because I mean, he always does stuff like this. So he was a good hook for getting into it, I think. Maybe not, not the most deserving. 
I, I find it interesting, like the way, like the way you talk about like the centre left and the the politicians that claim to be on in that world and how they um, position themselves and like are really concerned with Joe Public and whatever. And I find it really interesting, sort of looking at those that are more to the centre right and how they do that as well. But I guess what you're pointing out is the sort of hypocrisy of the left yeah. in doing that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a way of writing this book which would have been about Nigel Farage positioning himself as the man of the people. But it felt to me that there is more kind of awareness of that happening. That, that's something that people have kind of been able to spot in culture, going back to Eno Powell, definitely. I mean, Eno Powell's Rivers of Blood speech it goes through the kind of authentic playbook, doesn't it? It has this kind of supposed person that he's met on the street who tells him this stuff and says, I'm only saying what people are saying, but he can't like verify that this person exists. But it's been going, this goes back a long way. The centre left doing it is something different because it's, it's the values that they're not endorsing but paying legitimate uh, respect to in their, in their terms. And claim to be representing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, their values which are supposedly not the ones they hold. So there's always a kind of distancing which seems to be going on here. But do you think? That people are aware of that, and that's why they seem to be disconnecting with the traditional left. So there, is, there seems to be a less, less class alignment with the left. So people to, to, to be traditionally both, both left are moving to the right. I'm, I think this is a, a political science question <laughs> to, to some degree, isn't it? And, and I, I don't know because they're two broad categories, aren't they? Like yeah. pe people who would traditionally align with the left. There is some data which are gathered by people who I think have an agenda for gathering that data like Matthew Goodwin who, which seems to suggest that maybe in some places um, you know C1 or C2 DE voters are moving from the left to the right but I don't think those categories are very useful anymore I also just say as a side note that Matthew Goodwin has been at the centre of several controversies lately about um, speaking at a panel called Ethnic Diversity of Threat to the West. They changed it though. What they changed it though because of the backlash. What to? Oh, just something that they see as banal, which is equally as offensive, I think. But yeah, I think Matthew Goodwin is one of the people who are peddling this kind of like left behind white working class narrative, which is what you're taking to task, but from kind of a new labour, like not just new labour, but current labour perspective. Is that right? So I think one of the things I was, I've been subsequently worried about with the book is that people might say that I'm acting as though there is no problem or no kind of geographical or political imbalance in Britain um, between the, the kind of regions and, or parts of the regions and the cities and I don't think that's necessarily true I think it's one of a set of kind of parallel inequalities that exist which haven't been attended to my issue has been coming from the North East that um, it's always these kind of cultural, supposed cultural anxieties which are administered to rather than any kind of economic one and Matthew Goodwin uh, actually accused me of being a kind of materialist for this, essentially, saying, I went on, on Radio 4 to, to, I was invited on Radio 4 to discuss the book, and they said, okay, come on, but uh, guess, who's, guess who you'll be meeting on there? Uh, oh, for, for balance, is this? For, for balance, yeah. And, and, 
might be good when keeps on saying that it, it's kind of just the left always recourse to this economic explanation for everything to which I say well why not <laughs> in a way what, you know. also to that surely like aren't the left always being accused of not looking after economics surely the, the other main person is the left is like oh you don't know how to look after the public purse so to then say that the left reduce it to economics seems a bit of an odd criticism I would say there's certainly something like that going on and also he didn't broadly want to define economics. So I think the big problem with his his sphere of political science is that it treats every opinion that anyone ever has as inevitable. Um, that it says that people in Wakefield, Workington, Whitehaven have these cultural concerns and it's just how they are, they will always be like that and, and he doesn't think about what kind of influencing factors may have produced this, you know, what, what, what is mediating these ideas? Is it possibly to do with the fact that we've had a media which has kind of pumped this stuff out relentlessly, out really relentlessly for 20, 30 years? I don't know, more. <laughs> We've been. We were actually just talking about this over lunch, Rabbi Tisa, about convivial conviviality yeah. and what that means and how that's getting forgotten about in some of these places that get almost fetishized as towns of the left behind and how they've always been like been a certain way. I just think it's sometimes it's, the process is easier for people to name people to classify people. You people are like this. We are like that, and it serves. Uh, Elites to push to, to label these people, label people this way because it gets policies done and you can push things through that way. And some people are more understanding, and sometimes people accept that way of, of that way of seeing themselves. So, there's some some of my friends who live in Scotland are quite proud of the, the trope that's kind of revolved around them being anti English, very gruff, very strong, and all this because it, it serves the idea of masculinity. So, they use that they use that uh, that standard that's been put up. Of them for their own uses in their in their daily life, which is strange. But I guess the important thing to remember there, even though these are real people, they do not represent the entirety of the social class or the group or the area that they live, and that's what I think you're maybe arguing for, Joe. Or... Yeah, definitely. Although I think that what you've said to so is, is really interesting because it is the way that. Kind of antagonistic positions can be worn as, as kind of badges of identity. The, the Scotland thing is intriguing. I wonder, like, so I've, I'm from County Durham, I was brought up in Yorkshire, and Yorkshire, I think, it's been one of the places which has really started to define itself in these kind of David Goodhart style terms. If you keep on saying these people are very kind of not oblivious but obdurate when kind of modernity comes knocking, what's obdurate mean? Uh, what do I think obdurate means? So I was fishing. For for a word there at the end of a long day. I'm they're kind of tough, tough and resistant. Oh, I would say stubborn. Maybe. Stubborn. That's a better word. Thank you. Stubborn. Um, very stubborn when when modernity comes knocking. Um, they're going to kind of. There isn't a, some people who are going to say yes, we are, aren't we? And, and that is what what Yorkshire is like in my experience. Sorry, can I just say like in connection with that? So I'm a resident of Islington and I really enjoy the way you take apart the stereotypes of like Islington is this metropolitan elite place and Yorkshire and like the north is like the land of like the working class, land of like the far right because there's a bit where you say something about like you can find just as many racists on Caledonian roads and works of and I was like yes like that is always ignored like people always focus on this idea that it's like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown you know hashed out their new Labour deal in a restaurant, a restaurant in Islington what people miss is that yeah like Islington has suffered immeasurably from new neighbour economic policies and conservative and all of that as well but like 
I think it's really important, something that we talk about a lot, if not on the podcast and certainly amongst ourselves, that focusing on context and people's experiences in the places they are of like different aspects of power are really, really crucial if we're going to think about like how we can form a progressive politics that's more like that's reacting against the forces that try and homogenize whole areas. Well, to try and get a kind of more detailed account of what particular places are like is, is important. I think so. And like, just to recognize that places are not like, it's not like the whole of Yorkshire are white and far right. And like, I'm not saying that's what you were saying, but like those kinds of accounts are, as you say, like getting peddled on the media, like, oh, you know, these left behind towns, like, or like, you know, you see it in the kind of Asian grooming gang things, you get this portrait painted of like left behind places that have been invaded by brown men. Um, I don't know if what I'm saying <laughs> rings true at yeah. all. Um, but yeah, like I think it is really important to say like, okay, well, like what are those accounts masking? Who's yeah. who's describing them? Yeah. Who is who is that? Who is saying this about a certain area? Yeah, and, and whose purpose is, does it serve? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, David Goodhart is a really good example of that. Do you want to just quickly say who so he David is? Goodhart is? I think it, it would be remiss not to say that David Goodhart is an Etonian. For a start, a, an Etonian. What, what do we call it? Anyone want to? Bastard. <laughs> if he had a job description, if there was still job descriptions on passport, what was his job? Racist. Yeah. Respectable racist. Respectable. Uh, Is that libel? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> he, he founded Prospect Magazine, and he was a big cheerleader of Gordon Brown um, for for some time. But he wrote a book called The Road to Somewhere, in which he advocates. Uh, understanding society as being this division between kind of cosmopolitan what he calls everywheres uh, anywheres uh, and people are very rooted in place uh, and somewheres but of course what this book does as you say you know who, who is making this account about people is allied or, or kind of grouped together everyone who lives in a small town in Britain as though they're the same person uh, which is is frankly ludicrous I mean like the, 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 the various forms of diversity that one would find in any small town and even if we just come down to kind of intellectual diversity, diversity of opinion, it's much more substantial than is ever given credit for. And, and then that, that does become the question. The question becomes why why homogenise the people of of small town England? What what purpose is being served by that? I think. But I mean the, the, the Yorkshire comment was, was flippant on my part, but I I suppose I have seen that attitude. I mean, it's one example of a regional attitude that does exist. This kind of pride and stubbornness. And you're a, you're a, you're an insider, as in you know you're you're from the area. You've seen it go through certain stages. Like there are things that, that your experience of that area is valid. Like does that? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I felt I should probably just slightly apologise to to Yorkshire, as though I think three, four, five million people in there. <laughs> I was basically pulling a good heart. You move myself there um, but no this is is really important is uh, how how do we describe places I think I said in the book places aren't metaphors for something else they are kind of uh, dynamic entities which are always undergoing various forms of change that, that if anything would be the essential nature of places that places change I think um, what you're saying reminds me of, there's a book by a guy called Steve Hansen uh, called small towns of Steers Hines and his point 
Um, I don't agree with him on everything he says, but he makes a really interesting point about how like there's nothing inherently local about localism. And I think what he's trying to say is that like everyone who lives anywhere tries to make claims about what is essential about that place, but the fact is there aren't essential things about any place. Places are always changing. It's interesting thinking about your work and about the East End, is it must be one of the most over-discussed places. This is what I think. Like, places, yeah, places always changing. That's disconcerting to a human being. So human beings always seek to essentialize their experience by really either in myth or it's an ongoing story. But have it as a dynamic changing place makes people feel disconcerted. So this is why people who have lived there maybe ten years or feel a sense of ownership over a place. And you see this happen with like the new gentrifiers to the East End. They're staking their claims and they're being trying to be authentic. So they'll have faux pubs, they have lots of bars trying to kind of make themselves part of the area because they can't not it can't it can't be transient because if it is transient then there, there seems to be no soul and that's and that's what they're feeling like when I, when I speak to people they people lay lots of claims to places different people I speak to they claims to the same space but they cannot agree that they all they have all different claims it's contested yeah so it's, it, it seems to me like it's, it's a disconcerting thing for human beings to have this, the idea of a dynamic space I, see, I don't know really how to answer that because I don't know if I disagree with you, but I, I think the idea of that kind of disconcertedness is quite hard to frame in itself because the ways in which people might essentialise a place they come from are kind of varied, aren't they? <laughs> One way that maybe some, maybe the East End even has been essentialised is as a dynamic place. You can go back and find writing about the East End from the 19th century, which talks about its kind of constant sense of motion, its, um, you know, the kind of nascent multiculturalism of a place like uh, Limehouse, um, which I, I think is quite quite interesting. That often Britain, British people try to uh, essentialise Britain as the diverse and, and tolerant space. So it's, When it suits them. When it suits them, yeah. That very much when it suits them, I think. Um, but, I, I, yeah, it's kind of hard to know what you say, because I, th I think you're right that there is probably some kind of need to feel rootedness, and that there is something about acknowledging the dynamism of place which is is not intellectually easy for people but I also think that we look at, at the way that people inhabit places and do find accommodation with, with change I think um, I think there's a kind of a side by side this like you can accept the kind of the almost irrational part of it but you can also accept the rational part of it and it, it doesn't have to make sense it's the, it's the area that you live in so sometimes you make competing claims but also we know it's not our space there's other people going to come in so those, those things can live side by side and not really jar with each other and I think that's what I'm trying to write in my work it's, it's that convivial life that you live in and that's how you navigate that world mm. what I was thinking about as you were saying that is that you know the idea that East End has sort of been written about and been written about that must be like intrinsically linked to the fact that it's always been seen as a working class area and obviously elites have been moving around wherever they want for centuries as well but they never get characterised as being kind of like always on the move constantly busting around and like changing up everything you know what I mean like who gets attributed that kind of disruption 
gets attributed to particular people at particular times, depending on how much of a threat they're seen to whatever social order people are trying to hold on to. I was just thinking about that, and I was trying to think of a historical example, and I was wondering if, if Lord Byron was uh, <laughs> somewhere Sorry, Saskia's pointing and getting excited. <laughs> no one ever thinks of him as coming from Nottingham, do they? I think I'm pretty sure that that's where he was born. And he's seen as a hero in Greece, mm. and that's literally what I was just thinking about, because my grandfather's family, so my great-grandfather was born in Crete, my grandfather grew up there for summer's life, but he was born in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania and moved back there. Then went to Seychelles, ended up in the UK, and I had never been to Crete as like since the age of four. And when I went there, I'd had this whole idea of like the static Greek village in my head as like peasant people living these kind of like timeless lives of like riding donkeys around to their little farms. What really struck me was that in the forces of international politics on this tiny village and how that had affected different people at different times and I almost felt like an idiot because I was like well obviously my grandfather wouldn't have been born in Tanzania if everyone in this village were living some kind of static lives and I think that that point is who's Lord, By who's, who's Lord Byron I'll let you explain that one I was hoping not to explain it. Who's a poet from the early early nineteenth century, but also as famous for being what word am I looking for here? The little one, like someone who just kind of just flaps around, isn't it? Yeah. Kim Kardashian, basically, isn't it? Kim Kardashian with a club foot rather than a big bum. Well, I mean, significantly, he died in the Greek Civil War, didn't he? That's why he's a, a hero in Greek, and he did that in a dilettantish way. I know what I'll do next. I'll go and fight for, fight for Greek independence. But that that thing about the the small town, the small Greek village, and how you have this idea of the timeless place um, is really interesting because it reminds me that uh, globalization kind of homogenizes, but it doesn't homogenize homogeneously. Like globalization is experienced differently in every location. I think when I lived it, I, about 10 years ago, yeah, 10 years ago, I lived in, in Budapest for 10 months. And I probably went over with these ideas about what Central Europe is like. I thought, you know, it's going to be sitting in a cafe. It's, cold. it's always cold. Yeah. <laughs> Turned out it's the hottest place I've ever been. Heat <laughs> gets trapped in the Carpathian Basin. It's 37 degrees in summer. Oh, shit. Um, and, but yeah, it's incredibly cold in winter. Um, but all, all my ideas about it, we kind of get there and you realise that it has absorbed globalisation. It has shopping malls, but the shopping malls look kind of almost intangibly Hungarian. This, this, this kind of way in which things are played out um, locally. And, and I, I don't know if any of you have read um, China Mabel's novel, The City in the City. Does anyone know that? So a kind of fantasy novel, but set in a, a kind of parallel version of this earth, uh, uh, this world. And it's hard for me to describe right now, but it, I think it came out about the same time, but it really describes the it, one way you could read it is about the different ways in which be, being about the different ways in which globalization kind of impacts on, on very nearby places. Um, so we, we're going to find that dynamism still wherever, but it's always going to be producing a kind of heterogeneity of things, I, I, I think. Heterogeneity meaning lots of different things. <laughs> Can you define neoliberalism? Is it my job to do that? Is it really my job? This is what I'm saying. I told you this. When you ask, when you ask academics to define neoliberalism, they like to, they, they don't like doing it. 
can I give you, give you my version of what uh, what neoliberalism would mean with the caveat that I don't want to take full ownership of it, really? Of course. Um, did I use the word a lot in, in the book? Yes. A lot, a lot? I think I'm the only one who's read the whole thing, and I don't remember thinking, oh, he's banging on about neoliberalism, but I felt like it was a current that ran through the whole book. Because for me, it is probably a woolly term that is used imprecisely, even by people who know that they're using it imprecisely. Um, so I, I want to admit that I'm not a kind of economic expert in economics, but what I say, kind of diving into my memory banks, is that it is a form of, let's say, fair capitalism, which uses the instrument of the state to. Um, effectively kind of remove the hand of the state, the interventionist hand of the state from economics. Um, so it uses state power in order to, uh, I suppose, uh, transfer economic agency into the hands of theoretically any individual, but in practice usually individuals who are already wealthy, um, who, who then have more or less free hands to move capital around where, where they want to. It tends to involve lots of privatisation, um, the, uh, the kind of shifting of uh, publicly owned things, utilities and so on, into, into the hands of the, the kind of private sector. Um, and then there is the, the aspect with the money supply, which always confuses me because I'm not an economist, but I think it involves a kind of like strict control of the money supply. So there is... Am, am I right here? Can someone help me with this one? No, I think it's only good. But I think it's not good. good. I think that's one of the clearest descriptions I think I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> Did someone else want to ask a question? That's very kind. <laughs> a lot of your book is about, obviously, as a cultural studies lecture, it's about like cultural things as well as politics. And um, you do a comparison, or like you kind of talk about um, forms of authenticity in. Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and one of the things that I was really interested by which I've been thinking about a lot because as regular listeners to the podcast will know I watch a lot of uh, bad dramas with my parents and have noticed this trend for like rape as a form of entertainment which is making a certain kind of claim to authenticity by being like well this is what it's like this is like reality and by doing so, you make the point that that's literally just normalising rape as like a part of women's experience, which is kind of complicated because it is, but it shouldn't be. I guess I was interested in the book and maybe I just didn't quite process it right. But how do you think that kind of gendering that goes on in those two particular, well, let's say Game of Thrones, for example, is related to the political situations you then go on to talk about. Yeah, I mean, the, that chapter, the chapter which is mostly about fantasy literature, fantasy film, and James Bond, and new uh, bleak detective, of Brit British scandal drama, um, was, I think it was one of the, if not the first thing I wrote in the book, um, when I was sort of finding my way in, and it was there as a, a comparison. It was there to say, look, you can find this kind of shoulder-shrugging pessimism about what is real uh, as a kind of current in transatlantic drama as well. It's, I mean, this isn't just a British thing, but you could look at how Owen Smith and the biscuit might, uh, and the coffee might be related to this. Um, but yeah, the, the, the argument there is that it uses that Game of Thrones 
a lot of Game of Thrones fans might have a go at me about this, and, and uh, British scandal drama, so these detective things where, you know, historically British detective shows have been quite cosy and kind of have a nice cup of tea with Miss Marple and so on. And then about five years ago, influenced by Swedish and Danish TV, they suddenly sat being incredibly bleak, but in a kind of comically Scandinavian way that made it seem unrealistic, like it didn't seem like Britain. But all of these programs have in common that they use like little fictions about what is real as ways of saying this is what reality is. Um, and I think that it, in Game of Thrones, for example, and, and in the detective shows, and in James Bond, they use kind of sexual violence as a way of saying that we are very realistic because we're not scared to to show this kind of incredible misogynistic violence. You know, we we are unflinching when it comes to representing reality. But of course, that is a fiction about reality. I think, in a way, in in, in as much as it's saying this is what the most real thing is, it's a selective account of reality. Um, just on the Game of Thrones thing, so. I really like Game of Thrones, Tito really likes Game of Thrones, and it's in, like I agree with probably the majority of the things that you're saying, but I sort of grew up watching Lord of the Rings, and I didn't really see people that looked like me represented in that like fantasy mm. sort of king's drama, and Game of Thrones has sort of cha- like changed that a little bit for me, like you've got brown people in Game of Thrones, you've got women that are like leaders, you've got mm. like the... I don't know, it was just sort of something, it brought something different, but at the same time, it doesn't mean it's a, it's perfect and it needs to be critiqued. And I think you're right about the violence and misogyny is there. I, I kind of honed in on one aspect of it, and I have to say I did this in slightly bad faith because it's not like I don't watch it. I, mm. mean, I, I obviously <laughs> watch it to some extent. And I don't... I think my frustration with it is not in its actually... It, you know, what, what it does, as you say, is it, it opens... Um, it kind of opens up it, it, its, its span of representation mm. um, in a way that, that certainly the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films didn't do um, and it takes for, you know it says I can do what I want with this because it is a, a fantasy world which is, is you know what fantasy should be doing I mm. think unlike the Lord of the Rings films I think this debate's been going around this week is the Lord of the Rings TV uh, adaptation which is coming out <gasps> is there? Yeah. when? where? Next. by whom? <laughs> I don't know who, but um, oh. but oh, it's a six series thing. I don't know. That sounds a little bit over the what? top to me. I mean, turning the Hobbit into three films is a mistake. Mm. So it's not done by the, the same people. But um, but the thing with um, Game of Thrones is that my my axe that I was grinding with it is that it, it uses violence as shorthand for realism, um, which uh, in the same way as some Labour politicians might use uh, racism as shorthand for realism and say this is what is the most real thing and we can't ever get rid of this thing because it is just there immovably like a big stone. Um, that's really clever. That's so, that's so, that's so, that feels really, I don't want to say authentic. I was about to say authentic, but it's like that feels like you saying that, like that is what they do, isn't it? They're like, Oh no, we were talking about before we came to see you, the Gillian Gillian Duffy. Gillian Duffy. Duffy was a woman in Rochdale. Um, what did she say? Gordon Brown, she said She said to, she said to Gordon Brown like about it was about immigrants. She said mm. you'll use the term immigrants. She was like, Did she? It was something bigoted and racist. Mm. And Gordon <laughs> Brown said accidentally on camera will I don't know something like, will someone get this bigoted woman away from me get me away from this bigoted get woman. me away from this bigoted well, and he was like whose idea was that it was when he was in the car and it was an ITV was still record. it was an ITV report was still recording his, his microphone was still on yeah mm. 
And then this apparently was a, a terrible thing for him to have done. And then it turned out that Gillian Duffy ended up standing as a UKIP, uh, for UKIP as a councillor anyway. And But what happened was that Gillian Duffy was treated as the average British person other than the people from London. Mm. Uh, you know, everyone who is not from London is Gillian Duffy, which encompasses something like 52 million people. I don't Just know. Just because she's concerned with brown people, that doesn't mm. mean she's a racist. Like, it's... Yeah. And that means that she is the everyday. Like, we have to listen to these everyday people. I think it's really significant as well that she is from Rochdale, which is in the north, and it's the centre of the Asian grooming gang yeah. scandal, which you've talked a lot about on this podcast as uh, being a far-right rallying cry. Yeah. Ironically, when you look at growth of the far-right, they are stronger in the north than they are this south. Mm. So, although we try to avoid homogenising groups there is a seed somewhere that kind of lays it, there's some truth to it like any stereotype, like any kind of trope there, there's a little gem of truth there so where the far right is stronger, like the groups like National Action, they tend to be in northern towns rather than southern towns however, when you come to southern towns you're going to find it more support for the English Defence League, the further south you find mm. so it's quite interesting Does that not count as the far right? Uh, no, that's, but yeah, they're different factions. Different faction, but right. like national action tend to be um, the the one that have been prescribed. Right. So, so, but the further down you go, they they think it's not like there's much difference. But this, these ones are legal. Mm. Ones up north, well, national action isn't legal. One thing I wanted to ask you about there's a sentence that stuck in my head from the book where you say something like, "The Second World War." is the last time that the nation could have been conceived of as white. And I guess I would take issue with that in the... Well, I, maybe you want to talk a bit about it. I'm trying to remember exactly where that line was, but yeah, I do, I do remember it. I mean, what I'm using... I think there are plenty of reasons to take issue with that, to be fair. Yeah, it's probably probably a, a, good, a good criticism. Why... I think that this is what I'm trying to describe there is the way that Britain imagines itself mm. and if it can it will look back at that moment in time and say that this is before before Windrush for example um, and it is more to do with the self-image of homogeneity I think um, but obviously I know that I know that that is not a good sentence to use to be honest that's not not a good way of, of talking about in a book which is striving for a more kind of precise politics, uh, that would be a moment of pretty bad imprecision, yeah. I, I think that is how, that is the national story. The national story is perceived itself as 1945 is the traditional cut-off date of the traditional notion of Britain, and then we have Windrush. That's how, that's how Britain imagines itself to be. Even though we know it's not like that, that is the national narrative. Well, not, everyone know, not everyone knows it's not like that, I guess yeah. that's the point. Yeah, I think it's really, that's when, like we were talking about earlier, things like context and like, that is really important because I'm sure we've banged on about this before, but like Irish people were never conceived of as white. Like my family were a mixture of Irish and Italian migrants. They were definitely not conceived of as white. And they like were called the same racial slurs as like people of color are now in Britain. And also Satnam Verdi's work kind of looks at how by that point it had changed, but for a long time, uh, working class people were not seen as part of the nation. And thinking about what you were saying 
when we were talking about neoliberalism and the kind of um, the state kind of reducing state intervention, but that itself being a state-run project, um, paradoxically. The Second World War is a defining point because the socialist project of state provision for working class people was kind of seen by some people as like payback for sacrifice during the Second World War. Um, but before that, that kind of laissez-faire liberalism was very characteristic of British mm. capitalism, essentially. Taking like that kind of like more long lens approach, what do you think has changed that that is kind of part of our everyday politics now? I think this is something I've been kind of slightly worrying or wondering about recently. So I was teaching a, a course on, on British fiction and, and money and something I kept coming back to is, is it feels in some ways like neoliberalism was actually a resetting of British politics to what had broadly been its outlook through the second half of the 19th century and, and up to about 1945 and then the 1920s, you know, a story of laissez-faire capitalism. So um, have we just kind of had this kind of aberrant moment of kind of like mild socialism which we've then kind of fallen back out of again and I suppose that forms and in, falls into or, or lends itself to a certain kind of pessimism doesn't it which just says well nothing's ever going to change we'll just have this kind of cycle of uh, of riotous capitalism and mild socialism forever um, so what has changed since when particularly since 1977 since 1945 or don't know. <laughs> I've got a bit lost in what you guys are saying, but it's really interesting. <laughs> like I think I think I know what you're saying. Um, I guess I what I mean what I mean is in the sort of nineteenth century, early twentieth century, British capitalism was very individualistic and very much like big companies did whatever the hell they wanted, but also was sort of state mandates to do whatever the hell they wanted, with like the East India Company, like the scramble for Africa, like private companies were a big part of colonization and those kinds of projects and then in a way like <coughs> the sort of socialist project of like NHS NHS or welfare state welfare state all that kind of stuff which didn't go as far as it could have done but it's still like a big shift from that kind of politics it feels like a very different moment to where we're in now I think actually this is the kind of underlying core thesis of the book was that the individualism you're talking about, the kind of Thatcherite individualism, but also as you point out, uh, Victorian individualism, is what kind of new labour uh, embraced and what the a lot of kind of continuity new labour, continuity Blairite and Brownite people embrace, but they use an idea of community and collectivity which is always kind of racialized, I think, um, and, and is other forms of kind of like, I, I think, problematic collectivity as a, as a shield for this individualism. So Blue Labour would be an example of a, a political grouping or grouplet that, um, that did something like this. They, they, they have kind of strongly argued that what we need is kind of like more uh, deference to be paid to British or English history and, and um, English tradition, and we should all go maypole dancing and wear <laughs> poppies. And wear poppies. Everyone's yeah. wearing bloody poppies at the moment. <laughs> you talk a, a lot, and I agree with ninety nine percent of the things that you talk about with regards to New Labour and what they 
did and how they presented it and how they like created like mm. as you said contributed to this um authenticizing of who working class people are and all this stuff um i was talking to i spoke about this on the podcast before but i was talking to an academic the other day who like me comes from a working class background and he's a black guy i won't name him because I'll, I'll let him speak for himself and we were talking about how when we're having these conversations particularly in higher education um and within the academy and within elite spaces sometimes we find the sometimes we find that we can't always fully commit or contribute to conversations about new labor and their policies because had it not been for their policies we would not be sat in this room and it's a really difficult one because although i know about how problematic um all everything they stood for and what they did was the tangible effects of increase of increasing the welfare state is was, was life-changing for so many of us and it just meant so many of us were, i wouldn't be i would not be sat here interviewing now if john major had won yeah i would, like my life my mum's life would be very different and then even going back to labor like left-wing labor of the 80s my dad's life would be very different as well so sometimes as in quotations intellectuals or academics it can be difficult for some of us from a working class background to not take away the personal from the political in yeah. this moment. Does that go on? Like I've actually, I, I kind of tried to address this mm. in the book, but maybe didn't do it clearly enough. But actually, I, I don't want to hammer new labour in the same way as some Corbynites mm. might want to do, because I do think all the material improvements mm. in Britain made by new labour... I think that they had the opportunity to do much more yep. and very totally much agree. chose not to do that. Totally agree. But the the kind of mood of Britain was totally stagnant in and even being like twelve, thirteen years old, you can remember this, um, at the end of the, the major period, there's this kind of cultural push against majorism and, and no one wanted to be a major, right? No one wanted to identify with any any of that stuff. I mean, even people who voted for Conservative didn't want to identify with it because it just looked so dead and grey. You know how Major was always characterised as the grey man, mm. and in the, so f for me, kind of looking around the northeast, I would say that you could see that the New Labour period did really materially change. Uh, you know, a, a lot of places, and it created access, and as you say, it, it, it on some level expand the welfare state, mm -hmm. um, and these are all kind of laudable things. What it did, didn't do is enough of that, mm. and what it also did is hid behind those things to launch a racist war, mm -hmm. um, essentially. And then the other thing is, and what I'm kind of insistent about, and really wish I'd written more about and clarified, is that I feel there was something inevitable about New Labour historically. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good point. Like it was, we were ready to maybe help out poorer people a little bit more. Maybe we were ready as a country to do to to do that. Mm. And I don't feel like we're in that moment at all anymore. Well, <laughs> but, um, well I, I, this is what I also am arguing with, with New Labour people. Because I, I don't want to do the kind of Navarro media um, mm. that's just kind of throw stuff at, at all Blairites as though there was never any reason to, to kind of... Uh, agree with those politics. Uh, you know, it, it's it's not that simple. Mm. Um, and but they rode a boom, definitely. That New Labour rode a global boom, I think. And you and you look around. I remember reading the paper. So I was sixteen, reading the paper, and it said there was an article which was in the entirety of the European Union at the moment. This time, I think it was only Finland, and I can't remember what the other country was that didn't have a socialist prime minister or a nominally socialist prime minister. Sorry, Finland. 
Yeah. Finland was the only one. Finland and somewhere else, yeah. I think it was just <laughs> after Japan got elected in France, um, and then it, the EU was nearly homogeneously social democratic, what um, with New Labour in Britain, and they were all kind of riding a surplus, I think, um, as far as I can see, and it was part of a, a crest which you know, began with 1989 and the end of the Cold War and this kind of weird sense of an end of history optimism. Mm -hmm. But that was naive, of course, it didn't, it didn't plan for what happens when there is, is no surplus. Um, so I think there was a kind of global inevitability behind New Labour, behind Bill Clinton, behind the Socialist Party in France and, 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 and behind uh, stuff in Germany as well. What they didn't think about was, the, was how, what the pushback with that would be and they didn't think about kind of much bigger structural changes in the world like climate change and so on as well so I was going to say do you think a precise politics is even possible because <laughs> given the way, the way I see it this kind of language to me is still firmly grounded in the kind of the arguments of modernity and post-modernity so we seek to universalise in the spirit of traditional modernity so that's why you have big homogenous groups or we seek to classify people and kind of precise politics kind of for me sits in the notion of postmodernism. like you can descend into the locality and understand everyone's truth in the broken commons mm. so do you think it's actually possible in real terms to have a precise, precise politics or does it dissolve upon itself in real life so I, I think and I think that probably because your academic discipline I suspect you have a more precise vocabulary for talking about this than I do um, how does that make it more valid uh, well I, I, I think it, it might do in a way I think the tension you're talking about is, is a kind of politically modernist outlook and when I say modernist I'm probably coming from a, a kind of aesthetic and okay. background so I've got a, I'll, I'm on slightly shaky ground here um, but I, I think maybe you're talking about kind of like Habermas and, um, yeah. and uh, that's exactly who he's talking about but a kind of a, a, an attempt to sort of universal, properly universalise the, the kind of good bits of the Enlightenment um, and a postmodernist politics, a kind of post-structuralist politics which, which does kind of go towards the, the modular maybe and recognises a, a not, irreconcilability isn't a good word is it here because it's, it's not what I want but a simultaneity or something Yeah. Um, and, and there is a, intrinsically a contradiction between those things I I'm not clever enough to resolve that. <laughs> That's like the biggest dichotomy of political theory. Can I put so. it in? Can I put it in simpler terms? Is is what Corbyn stands for? Is that like is that political movement? Is that something that we should be celebrating? Is that something that we should be getting behind? Is that something which is gonna get make things better? There's concrete Corbynism, and then there's possibly like the kind of potential of Corbynism, isn't there? Concrete mm. Corbynism. It's um, annoying. It's, yeah, <laughs> I, I think it often is. I think that it tries to tread, uh, uh, tries to resolve exactly the tension you're talking about without finding a meaningful way of doing it, and therefore we end up with uh, uh, Corbynism embracing some quite bad positions that aren't actually that distinct from some bad Blairite positions. Um, but the, for example, um, I, I don't think that some of Corbyn's ideas are that far from Ed Miliband's. Uh, mug to be honest uh, some of the, the kind of controls and immigration mug I, th I think that Corbyn has, has triangulated in, in places with that um, I just when I finished reading your book I was like I had this thought like oh like maybe like Corbynism is quite a good thing like maybe we should be more pro because like we're a bit skeptical about it on this podcast 
Um, and then like the day I finished, Labour announced their immigration policy and it was like cutting detention, keeping immigration control. And it's like cutting detention is not the same as imprisoning people for daring to migrate to the, mm. you know what I mean? Like it really hammered home how like Corbynism is still quite a sketchy project yeah. in some ways. Yeah, it's, it, it can often be quite half-assed, can't it? That's, that's the thing. And, and But it does... I think because it has brought together, I think, different groups who previously weren't necessarily talking to each other, like maybe some some kind of like socialist universalists, but also people from the more kind of radical and postmodern postmodernist left are now finding some kind of common ground. Then maybe there is a possibility of building this into some kind of some kind of mass movement. Um, I don't know, I feel alternately pessimistic and optimistic about it and then at other times I feel that it is, for me, it's a kind of better compromise than the compromises that were on offer before, yeah. uh, which is not to say that I think it is the, the greatest thing to ever happen in the history of world politics, like some people seem to. What I do find is that there have been bad resolutions of that as well, like, um, so people who previously were on the kind of, like, theoretical kind of uh, post-structuralist left, like who may or may not be grouped around a, a certain political radio uh, podcast, um, but uh, the, the Navarra people, I think, we're always very kind of very kind of in that sort of you know post-structuralist left. Um, What's a post-structuralist left? <laughs> yeah. post well, you offered a better explanation of it than me, I think. Definitely. <laughs> don't be under pressure now. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how I describe it. Um, Which is what I mean. Like, what is it? Come on. <laughs> it doesn't seek to universalise it, its ideas, and it, it and it manages to or, or recognises again. It's different to the word, but it recognises a kind of simultaneity of different possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a good definition. Joe, what is your message of hope for politics and British society? I, you know what, I do a message of hope if it, uh, in, in as much good faith as uh, I can muster is something like I do think people are asking questions and talking publicly about things that they weren't asking questions about and talking publicly about and I do feel that there is this kind of shift over on some ways. I, I feel like there was a kind of blindly unquestioning nationalism that has dominated British, British politics in, in subtle ways for the past decade which I now feel that actually a surprising number of people are starting to get sick with but in a way just because it's overplayed its hand in a, in a way it's it, it just the I, I don't want to talk about it extensively because I feel like I always talk about it but the poppy thing for example like the, the way that that has been that that symbol has been really kind of completely taken over by a hard nationalist movement has actually started to drive people who would historically have worn that symbol away from it and you are seeing this happen now. This isn't like people on the hard left going, I'm not going to wear a poppy, it's newsreaders on Channel 4. Mm. Um, so I, I do think there is there is some kind of movement away from the entrenched positions of, of five or six years ago. Mm. Brilliant. Um, you've been listening to Survivor Society with Joe Kennedy in Sussex. Um, we'll be back every week, so don't forget to subscribe. <laughs>